You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Gates family of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania will spend this holiday season every weekend doing what they've done for years. And that is sitting down on the sofa and watching as many Hallmark Christmas movies as they can. You see, they are very devoted fans. Uh, and if you think about it, there are right now, just for this year, 22 new Hallmark Christmas movies. That's not counting the 150 that are already in existence. So if you put those numbers together and think of how often Hallmark airs their Christmas movies during this holiday season, you could watch around the clock one of their movies. But they're not the only ones. There's, there's hundreds of others who spend a tremendous amount of time watching these Hallmark movies. So much so that avid fans have developed spreadsheets to help them know which movies they have watched so far and which they want to see. Some have developed their own rating system, which movies most likely to make you cry, uh, which one features the most episodes of baking Christmas cookies, uh, and all of those things from those movies. Now, I'm not against Hallmark movies, and I'm glad that there's entertainment value in them, but is it possible that there's something else that should fascinate us at this time of year? And, and not just at this time of year, but throughout the year. And that brings us to why we're looking at the mysteries of Christianity. In other words, what do we have in the teaching of Scripture that then in a sense is, is so wonderful that we can't fully wrap our minds around it, but yet it is revealed to us by God, and that you can't talk about Christianity without talking about these things. So last week we looked at the Trinity, that there are three persons that are co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet there is only one God. Well, this morning we're going to turn our attention to the mystery of the Incarnation. And this is what John introduces us to in the prologue. So if you, if you have a Bible in front of you, again, I'd encourage you, look at John chapter 1. And the first 18 verses of this letter make up what's called the prologue. Think of it as an introduction, but more than just an introduction. In other words, if the first 18 verses pique your interest, then you want to read the rest of the book. Because what John does is he introduces you into a number of the key themes that he will further explore throughout the rest of the book. And so as we come to these first 18 verses, just let me remind you the purpose of the Gospel of John, in John's own words, is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. So everything said here is to remind us, again, to follow Christ means we have to know who he is, know the truth about him. So let's look at verse 1 here. And John begins by simply helping us remember and look at a definition of the incarnation. Verse 1 begins and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Now you probably already know this. The word incarnate or incarnation is not in the Bible. Uh, it's a word that means to embody or to be covered in flesh. So we speak of the incarnation referencing Jesus Christ, who existed from eternity past, now comes clothed and covered in flesh. If any of you know a teenager or have a, a grandson or child who's a teenager, uh, you probably know and have heard of the game Fortnite. Uh, many of my students play it. Uh, I'm not sure sometimes if they're doing their homework, but they're playing that. But in Fortnite, the big emphasis is you can buy skins or coverings for your players. And, and these skins or coverings can get pretty expensive, but they also give you some protective advantages in the game. Well, what you have when you speak of the incarnation, is you have Jesus Christ putting on skin, putting on a covering to make God known to us. And so as you think about that, notice in verse one that we just read, how it, it's particularly worded, the word was God. And if you're wondering, well, how do we know the word here is referring to Jesus? All you have to do is go down to verse 14. It says the word became flesh. And John, who was one of the three very closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, speaks of his own personal experience and eyewitness testimony. But notice how it begins by reminding us the Word was with God, and yet the Word is distinct from God. That's very important when we consider the three in one. The word, word here is lagos, which you may know it means communication, uh, an orderly discourse. So how do we know God? We can only know him through Jesus Christ. And as, as you look closely at this, you notice that in a sense, this is God speaking to us, saying, you, you wanna know who I am, what I'm like, what I expect from my creation? Then, then listen to Christ. A little bit later in, in John's Gospel, uh, he reminds us again that to see Jesus is to see the Father. And we all know that God is invisible. We, we cannot see God. He doesn't have a body like us, but yet he chose to reveal himself. And so you notice in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now that phrase, to make known, is an English word to exegete. And exegete is something you probably hope to come to church to hear, and that is where you exegete a text. You take a verse out of the Bible and you help explain it. You make it clear, you make it known. So Jesus was sent by the Father to make known to us who he is, what our created purpose is, and what is the meaning and significance of life, and how we can be brought back into a right relationship with him. So you can start to see you can't speak of being a Christian without understanding who Christ is. And you can't speak of Christianity without having the word Christ in it. And so the distinction is clear that this one who would come was both God, was with God, and yet he is distinct from God in person, but of the same exact nature, being, and power. Later in the Gospel of John, you have one of the disciples, Philip, 
and this is before Jesus is going to head to the cross. He's telling them what's going to happen. And, and Philip says, uh, could you just show us the Father? Show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, you, you've seen me. You have seen the Father. There's no need for further revelations for new prophets to come along and somehow add or explain and give us a clearer picture of who God is. That has been given to us in Christ. So John starts by giving us a, a brief definition, an understanding he is, has been with God, but yet is distinct from God. But then you notice verses 14 and 15. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now you have this one who pre-existed with the Father and the Spirit, the three in one, has now taken on skin. And, and he's, he's come and lived among us. That word to dwell among us is a very rich word in terms of Old Testament background. Uh, it's the same as saying to tabernacle among us. And so if you think of Old Testament history, people of God went to the tabernacle and God met with the priests in the tent of meeting. It was where God met with his people. Now in Christ, we have God meeting with us, coming down to, to our level to communicate who God is in a very gracious and humble way, not just through his teaching, but ultimately through his death and resurrection. He, he made his dwelling among us. One more modern paraphrase puts it this way. Uh, he moved into our neighborhood. He showed us who, who is God. Does God love us? Does God even care about us? Christ's presence and ministry echoes back a resounding, yes, he does. He loves you. He sent his son to pay the price for your sins. So notice in the, our understanding of the definition of the incarnation, we have God coming to us in Jesus Christ who took on flesh to live among us and then to die for our sins, rise again, to be at the Father's right hand even now, and yet is going to return. And this is an important understanding that many church creeds and confessions throughout history have, have echoed and confirmed that this is not something the church later invented, but it's been the, the heart and soul of the scriptures and the message of God. And so you can go through history and look at some creeds or statements of belief, the way the church would summarize its teaching. And often in history, this understanding of who Christ is has been attacked, as it is today, where you will find articles usually this time of year talking about, you know, is there a difference between the historical Jesus and the real Jesus? Uh, presentations that Jesus was like God, but he's not equal to God. So a number of months ago, I had a conversation with uh, some Jehovah Witnesses who came to the house and as we were talking, they you know, were telling me how uh, they do not believe that Jesus is God, that he's not equal to God. And they use the very careful phrase, he is like God, but he's not equal to God. 
Now that right away would, would contradict these very words here. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But as I was talking to them, I said, well, well, let me see if I get this straight. So what you're saying is that Jesus is like God, but he's not God. And they're like, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's certainly to be honored and respected and revered, but, but he's not God. And I said, so I, I want to be clear here. So you're saying he's not God. He's like God. Uh, and they were like, yes, yes, that's exactly. And I said, you know, that was something they taught a long time ago. And you could tell they got a little excited, like, okay, good, yeah, we're, you know, this is a historical teaching. I said, but do you realize the early church called that a heresy? And with saying that, he looked at me and he said, I'm not really familiar with creeds and confessions. I'll have to get back to you. Now, what I wanted to say was, I think you should be, because those things confirm to us what Scripture teaches. And one of those strongest statements is a Chalcedonian statement, which simply says this, in the incarnation, you have the uniting of two complete natures in one person, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So here's why we refer to it as a mystery. I can't fully wrap my mind around how that could be. I have nothing to compare that to where you can take two complete natures, a human nature and a divine nature, combine them in one person, and there's, there's no confusion about this, there's no contradiction within it, there's no morphing into some weird third nature, but two complete natures in one person. And so we see that is what Scripture says. This is the Jesus who came to earth. And he came to provide salvation from sin. But as you look at John's prologue, this opening to his book, he goes on to give us a little bit fuller description of the incarnation. And so you notice this in verses 1 through 4. And you may have caught yourself thinking, the opening verse sounds familiar. In the beginning was the Word. And you go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created John is kind of saying here, you know what, we're, we're talking about a sort of a renewed creation here in Christ. And I want you to catch the deliberate repetition here. In the beginning was the Word. So when we think of Jesus Christ, we're, we're incorrect to think that he just came into existence at Christmas. His pre-existence is clearly taught in this passage. Notice he was involved in creation. The whole act of creation was an act that involved the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 4, referring to the Word who is Jesus Christ. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. In other words, he, he was not dependent on any to create him, just as God was not dependent on anyone to create him. If someone is created, that implies there's one greater than you. So John wants us to understand this, this one's coming is different from any prophet in the past. He's greater than Isaiah. He's greater than all the other prophets because he, he is self-existent. He has always existed and always will exist. Notice as well in verse 4, to say that I have life in myself reminds you of a, a title 
that Jesus would use later in the Gospel of John. So if you'd like to just flip to John chapter 8, John chapter 8, and look with me at verse 56 through 59. Uh, Jesus is in a discussion here with the religious leaders. Uh, and as you may be aware, often they are in conflict as they do not believe that Jesus is God or could be God. But if you look at John chapter 8 and beginning at verse 56, in this discussion, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. I don't know how strong your math skills are. Mine are not super strong. But I know enough math to realize Abraham existed a long time before Christ centuries before him. So here's Jesus standing before these religious leaders say, you know who Abraham is. Uh, do you realize Abraham looked forward to my coming? In a sense saying, I, I was around before Abraham. But look what happens next. They respond, they did the math quick, and they said, you are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now just stop there and think for a moment of, of how a follower of Judaism who knows just the Old Testament would react to Jesus saying, not just before Abraham was, but then to say before Abraham was, I am. Uses the very title that was given to Moses when Moses was to go before Pharaoh. And Moses said, when I do that, who am I going to say has sent me? And God says, tell them I am. And we know that the religious leaders were tracking with what Jesus said here. Because look at the last verse in verse 39. After he, these words come out of his mouth, at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They did what you, according to law, should do if you think someone is a false prophet. If you think someone is claiming to be God and, and you believe they're not. So in other words, this passage is clear teaching. They understood what Jesus was saying. And they were furious that they couldn't abide by this. Because that's what you should do when you think someone is claiming deity and they're not divine. The problem was their logic was correct, but their conclusion was wrong. In every other case, it would be worthy of stoning. But the problem was he was God and his miracles and teaching testified to that. But let's go back to John chapter one. And you notice in verses 10 and 11, not only does John remind us of the deity of Christ, that he is fully God, but also at the same time in the incarnation, he is fully man and yet without sin. Because notice in verse 10 and 11, the world, that he who was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And if you know a little bit about history, how was Jesus received? 
the one who called all things into being with the Father and the Son, the promised Messiah, is rejected. First among his own people, the people of Israel who, who abide by the Old Testament, who looked at those prophecies and said, when that promised one comes, he will set up a new kingdom and, and we will reign with him. Again, recall maybe the, the of prophecy of Isaiah when he says, this one who would come, he would be despised and rejected. We would not esteem him. In other words, the creator came home and we said, talk to the hand. We, we don't care. What a picture here of, of this one who's fully God, yet now coming in skin and also being fully man and yet without sin. And notice John's very careful. It says in verse 14 again, he became flesh. Literally, he became completely like us with one exception. He never sinned. And you'll see why that's important in a few minutes. So we've seen a little bit more about definition, at least maybe now you know what the word incarnate means, incarnation, what it refers to. We have a fuller description of that mystery here. But often in any kind of teaching on Jesus coming, we often stop at this point. And the problem is, if you just stopped here, it will prevent you from delighting in the incarnation. In other words, why is this teaching, not just information, but why should it be transforming? Why should it be something that we leave not forgetting, but thinking about? And the answer is found in verses 16 and 17. There John goes on and he says, From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, As, as you kind of think about that, so you have these two natures being combined in one without compromise or confusion. So what does that guarantee? Why was that necessary, that this was God's design and plan? Well, first of all, it explains how our restoration and forgiveness of sins could take place in Christ. So what we needed was one who was perfect and had the power of God to deliver us from sin. So in other words, if we just had someone come just like us, but he was not fully divine, he would not have been able to accomplish living a life of perfect obedience, dying in our place, and satisfying the wrath of God. If he was just fully man, he would have been just a, a model for us, an example, maybe no different from other religious leaders and prophets in the past. So in other words, for us to be able to say, in Christ, we can be made right with God. We can have what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden be reversed, it would take one who is both fully God and fully man. So in other words, that says to us, this is a truth we, we should think about and, and be excited about because it just would not have been possible if he was not fully God and fully man. And, and John indicates this, if you look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, he says, even though he, he received this terrible reception and we thanked him for coming by crucifying him, he says, yet to all who received him, 
To those believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So you have in the New Testament this reminder. What happened with the first Adam? He sinned and we all are sinners because he represented us. But now what happens in Christ? The second Adam comes and he passes the test that Adam could not pass, that none of us could pass, and then provides the way, if we respond by faith and belief, we now become children of God, forgiven of our sins. So that's one reason we should delight in the truth of God putting on skin in Christ. But then there's also a second reason. This explains Jesus's ongoing present ministry. In other words, Jesus is in heaven right now. His spirit lives in those who know him as Lord and Savior. But Jesus is in heaven. Well, what is he doing? Well, he functions as our prophet, our priest, and our king. How can he do that? Because he still is fully God and fully man. I think sometimes when we think of the incarnation, we think that that was like a temporary stage. That Jesus did this, then he went back to the Father, and it was like he's, he's back to what he was before all this happened. But according to Scripture, when Jesus took on flesh, he remained what he was, and that was God, became what he had not been, man, but now forever he remains fully God and fully man. And therefore he knows our needs. He can identify with our struggles, even at this moment, because he's both. So if you remove that, you could argue, well, if he's just fully God, he's so high above us and so far removed from us that he, he just, there's no way he can understand the struggles we face or the difficulties of temptation or the confusion that we go through in this life. But because he remains the God-man, that explains how all of that is possible. Uh, and I encourage you, maybe if you have time later, look at Hebrews chapter 2, where, where the writer of Hebrews says, this is how it had to be so Jesus could function as our great high priest, the one who can sympathize with our every need. So maybe this Christmas, if you want to allow yourself a few Hallmark movies, that's great. But make sure the thing that most fascinates you are the mysteries of Christianity, and in particular, the mystery of the incarnation. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and help us to take these words, to examine them, to read them ourselves, to go through the Bible, because we don't want to believe a lie. But Lord, since your word is truth, this truth we must embrace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.